What is up, you guys, and welcome back to episode 36 of the Lombard Trucking Show. At time of recording, I'm coming at you from Indianapolis, Indiana, the crossroads of America. Some call it Naptown. And uh, very excited for today's episode. Uh, got a, uh, an awesome special guest with us today. It's actually funny. Not really sure entirely how we met. I, I believe he just followed me on Twitter eventually, probably through the Twitter algo verse and uh and on the trucking Twitter world. And he had followed me and his name on there is actually, it's funny. It's kind of an ironic name. He calls himself the autonomous truckers, but the E R S is in parentheses. Uh, his real name is Gord. Um, he's got a sub stack out there. He's a big advocate in the industry. Recently listened to him on the Bloomberg podcast, odd lots. And uh, we started talking and we've gotten involved in some hot and heavy threads of people arguing on Twitter of all kinds and uh, happy to have you with us, Gord. Uh, glad you're here, man. Um, good morning. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Trucking Twitter, the, the, the tiny little slice of the 18 wheeled universe that it is. Um, yeah. I think I just kind of roam around and you know, you know, you know how you like uh, lurk on other people's threads and posts and you'll see interesting accounts pop up. You do a little profile scan. I think that's how I found you. I'm like, all right, this dude looks interesting. <laughs> all right. And, that, and that's what I do too. I'll be like, Oh, he followed me. And then I, I kind of read it, go through. Yeah. Went through your tweets. I was like, yeah, this guy, this guy's in, this guy seems like <laughs> something that's good. And then, yeah, there, there, there've been, then somehow these arguments, you know, have come up. I, oh. We were in, yeah, we were in like a thread with 30 some odd people and people were going back and forth and you could tell, and yeah. And then we DM'd on the side and we're talking about it. It's funny. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I, st I stayed out of that. It got, it got a little bit, uh, I don't want to say heated. I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinion and you know, like there's an old saying, um, arguing with a trucker is like wrestling with a pig in the mud like sooner or later you you realize that the trucker likes it and the pig likes it you know um and uh yeah i mean you know it's always interesting to get everybody's perspective on stuff and you have to consider both sides of an argument but you know if they get too far out of hand you just kind of have to like stay that minimum distance away from the blast radius you know yeah, eventually you got to kind of back yourself back yourself off of it. But um, let's uh, let's let's get right into this. Let's uh, you know let tell the world you know tell your story. Kind of give us a synopsis. You know, walk us through your life, bring it up to today. What got us to today here? You know, oh, what's, wow. your, what's your career been like? All right. Um, well, I'm 43 now. Um, uh, I've been around the trucking world my entire life. My dad's a trucker. Both my uncles were truckers. Uh, one of them's no longer with us, and my other uncle is retired. My grandpa was a trucker. He uh, he drove a tank in the Second World War, drove a Sherman across Europe in a Canadian uniform, blasted some real Nazis, not all of the fake ones that exist in the heads of terminally online ridiculous people. Um <laughs> He came home from the war, moved to Sudbury, worked at a nickel mine for a while, then went down to Hamilton. And because he had lots of experience fixing those tanks, he was sought after as a mechanic. And then he went to work for this trucking company and the rest is history. Uh, I got into it when I was a teenager. I went to work for these guys on the east side of Hamilton, like at night after school, helping local guys set up trailers. Like they had a lot of flatbeds and oversized and low boys and stuff. And Hamilton's Ontario, right? 
Correct. Yeah, it's about 40 minutes uh, further southwest on the shore from Toronto on Lake Ontario. And they're Canada's two biggest steel mills are there. Um, so it's sort of like the Pittsburgh of Canada. And a lot of guys there end up hauling steel. That's just what you do. So um, I, uh, I used to work with the evening shift guys uh, getting trailers set up. We would load them, chain them all down, tarp them. And then the highway guys would hook up to the trailer and go to Chicago or wherever they were heading. I did that for a while, wash trucks, grease trailers, help the mechanics, did the old, you know, the sort of old school coming up through the ranks as it were, um, learning about the industry from the very inside. And then, uh, when I turned 18, I got my CDL as soon as I could, uh, in can in Ontario, they call it a class A, um, and you can get it when you're 18. And I started working local, Oh, then they would, you know, send me on the odd trip to Montreal. Then I ran Detroit for a while. I mean, that's only four hours down the road from Hamilton. So I was home every day, but like, you know, you know how the hustle can be like, they, they, they say you're working local, but you're still working 18 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. No, those, those home every night jobs come with, yeah, still come with a price. You know, guys talk about it. Oh, I'm home every night, home every night, but they're, you know, they start work at 4am and then they're back at, you know, maybe 6 p.m. and then they go right to bed it's uh, yeah there's, there's a give and take with those yeah they don't they the, the well the thing is is they they expect you to work the same hours of service and get maximum utility out of the truck so that's just the way the the way the business is set up but anyhow i i did that um started eventually doing long haul uh, did some traveling when i was younger i went to australia i went to new zealand um tr drove truck down there um, came home, brought a buddy of mine from New Zealand with me. We went up on the ice. He went home. I kept going back on the ice for a few winters. Uh, met an owner operator from Alberta while I was there. When the ice went sideways, we went down to Alberta and hauled fuel there instead. Did that for a little while. Oh man! And then so um, you were you were you were were you hauling ice or were you doing like the you know the glamorous the you know, what they uh, glamorize, romanticize the ice road trucking. Yeah, no, no. I, I ran the ice for four, four, four winters. I did uh, three winters on the Tibet to Contueto Road, which is the one they did the first season of the TV show on, uh, going up to the Diamond Mines. So I hauled, fuel oh, wow. up, I hauled fuel up there for three winters. And then one season I did, um, there's another road up there called the Mackenzie Valley Winter Road, which follows the Mackenzie River. If you look at a map of North America, the longest river is the Mississippi that everybody knows. If you go north of 60, um, there's a huge lake in Northwest Territories called Great Slave Lake, which is fed into by Lesser Slave Lake and all these rivers down in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And then Great Slave Lake drains into the Mackenzie River and it goes northwest to the Beaufort Sea, um, kind of like near where Alaska and the Yukon meet. And uh, uh, there's a bush road that follows that river in the wintertime. And there's a bunch of native communities along there. And those native communities can only get fuel. Some of them can get fuel if they're right next to the river from barges in the summer. And then the rest of them get their fuel in the winter. And that's stove oil for their stoves, diesel and gas for their cars and snowmobiles and all that stuff. And um, the government, the Northwest Territories government runs these tank farms in each little town. So in the wintertime, you haul fuel and stock them up. Yeah, um, that was interesting. The, there's a town, the furthest town at the very north end of the 
Mackenzie Valley Winter Road is called Colville Lake. Um, population 125 people. Um, takes uh, if you're moving steady and everything's going okay, takes three days to get there from Hay River, three and a half days. Um, we got there in the middle of the night once and I had an airline blow on my trailer and it was 53 below zero. So I had to get underneath there with the tools and fix everything. And yeah, it's a different, different world up there, brother. You there? I'm here. Okay. Looks like I will have to do some editing. We're still live. It's still going. Um, so anyways, yeah, you were go. you, uh, last left out. Let's, uh, cause we'll bridge it right into, yeah. You were talking about the McKenzie river, uh, yeah, population 120 up there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Up, I was up in, yeah, the, the furthest north community along that road is called Colville Lake. Uh, like I said, I was just trying to give your uh, listeners an idea of the distance involved. It took like three and a half days to get there from Hay River, mostly because on these bush roads, you're not going very fast. Like we would probably only do 50, 60 kilometers an hour, you know, top speed, um, just because uh, the road itself is. It's just a line cut through the bush and it's like frozen muskeg with some like snowpack. And then they like flood a little bit of ice on top of it. And that's basically, you're just, you're just driving on frozen snow. It's uh, you, know, you chain up, you get to this town called Wrigley, which is uh, the end of the dirt road, which is probably, Oh, Wrigley's a good five hours from Hay river, maybe five and a half. And um, the, the road ends and they have this big wide field. And you have to put your chains on. You put tri-railers on all four drives, full lockers, the whole nine yards, because as soon as you leave Wrigley, you literally drive into a river valley and then have to pull up the other side of it. And it's just it's just snow and ice. So if you don't chain up, you ain't going anywhere. And then you leave, you leave your chains on the whole time you're in there. Like all like it takes you a week to go to Colville Lake and back. Your chains are on the whole time. Man, that's wild. That's something. I, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't mind doing that just for the experience. But yeah, sometimes people don't know the di- the distance up there because maps do it no justice. Like, I because I was looking, I was like, man, is there any way to take something to Alaska? Because I've been trying to get up there, but people have no idea that from Washington to Alaska, that's a twenty four hour drive on a map. It doesn't look it like it. It, it, it for some reason it looks smaller, like that length of Canada. It's 20, 24 hours in the seat driving, not twenty four hours stop sleep get up drive get there it's 24 hours in the seat and that's under prime conditions if it's not winter time yeah it's 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 absolutely wild no that's sick though that's that's awesome i that, that's some that's some badass shit right there definitely not cut for everybody everybody can't do it people got a hard enough time in the winter as it is and winter's already <laughs> winter's already coming there's uh, there was already problems in new york i know i was talking about a little bit on on social media. So you, you did some of the ice road trucking. Where'd you, where'd you go? Where'd you go from there? What, um, um well, life's interesting. I took a couple of years off of doing that sort of seasonal far away stuff and stayed home. My, uh, my mother wasn't in very good health and I had my grandparents living with me and I bought a house and we all lived together. And then my grandma died and my grandpa got dementia and then yeah, anyway, long, long, messy story. I was, I was still trucking. I was only working local um, back close to Hamilton, though, for a couple of years. And then I met my wife. And then uh, I got this job in Australia. And I took my wife with me. We lived in Western Australia. I ran up and down the West Coast between Perth and this little town called Caratha. And did a few other various excursions. Uh, Newman, uh, up to Broome, 
couple of little places here and there out in the desert, but I mostly stayed close to the coast. Um, did that for about a year and a half. And my wife and I traveled around for a while and then came back here and decided to settle where uh, she grew up, which is Ithaca, New York. I got my green card, so I'm all official. I'm not an illegal immigrant. <laughs> <laughs> you got a yeah. lot in common with the, a lot of other drivers out here when you think about it. There's a lot of guys yeah. like you who are doing this. Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, had had a couple of kids, and now I work for a a very small company, a guy with three trucks, haul logs around upstate New York and northern part of Pennsylvania. It's very slow right now. Uh, The economy hasn't been very nice, and um, cost of fuel and all the rest of it. um, Yeah, things are a bit tough. Really? So even in the, even in the logging industry, I thought, yeah, I was just up in, you know, Montana back over the summer and maybe the summer was different, but I mean, I, I felt like, yeah, there was no, there's nothing but from Washington state. I mean, on 90, it's like, cause there's, there's not a lot of dry freight that moves around up there. That isn't regional. It's, it's all logs and fuel. I feel like it was, all, <laughs> it, was all logs. it was at least yeah. in that, that part of the country, well, all logs yeah. and fuel. Out, out there is going to be your softwoods, much like up in Canada. Um, here, it's all hardwood, so uh, it's mostly like maple, cherry, oak, ash, um, hickory, stuff like that for making, you know, your window trim, floors, furniture. Well, I guess as, I guess even as dry freight, so I guess the production just isn't there yet. Like the companies, well, yeah. You know, man, yeah, manufacturers aren't producing, so... Yeah, yeah you're not so there's be that. There's a, the, the demand is down. And so basically uh, what's happened specifically to me and my employer is he's a buyer. So he goes, he's a, he's a go-between between the mills and the landowners because most of the logging here is like private landowners. Uh, a couple of the mills own some of their own woodlots and whatnot. But anyway, the because the demand is down, um, the mills just keep cutting the price they pay for the timber so basically landowners are like why would i sell now i'll wait until the market corrects in a couple years doesn't cost me anything to leave the trees standing so there's just there's just nothing moving eh? so i mean he's pimped me out to work for a couple of other people hauling their stuff but again it's still very slow okay no that's awesome yeah and you know we'll we'll see how the the economy and stuff pans out. We'll see what future that goes in. Let's um. So so you you have a you have a stub stack. You know you you talk a lot about the trucking industry. So your name, which I find really funny and ironic, you call yourself autonomous driver or autonomous trucker. Now is that just like an irony thing because of because of you know the future coming? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's a play. It's a play on things. I mean, there's always you know you hang around on the internet long enough and everything is like. A layered inside joke so yeah the whole autonomous truckers with like the er and parentheses like if you remove the parentheses it's autonomous trucks which is what you know all the tech bros are trying to pimp and the media are held in sway too because everything is about technology these days right so yeah i was sort of i was sort of trying to play with that and then also play with the term autonomy because one of my projects is like studying the work of people who've studied trucking. You know, um, I, I, I follow um, some people like Michael Belzer, Steve Vichelli, Karen Levy, these like highfalutin academics that have actually spent their whole lives studying us. And um, one of the problems that plagues the industry, as I'm sure you and everybody else knows, is like they're taking our autonomy away from us. 
right? So they impose all this technology on the trucks, the ELDs, your Qualcomm's, there's somebody always breathing down your neck. And like trucking started out traditionally, you know, like back in the 70s, you know, Smokey and the Bandit and movies like Convoy and there was, there was uh, you know, the Dukes of Hazard. There was this like sort of understanding that truckers kind of like were the uh, were, were the, the, the archetype, you know, the, of the last cowboy, you know, the, the person that like, you know, ran their own ship, did their own thing, were not subservient to anybody and they had autonomy. Well, that's been slowly chipped away from us to the point where it basically doesn't exist anymore. So that's like, there's, there's a couple of different plays on words going there, but I just figured autonomous truckers was the sort of good, good title for my latest project. No, it's awesome. I love it. And yeah, you're absolutely right about how it was once romanticized in the, you know, in songs and movies. And uh, you mentioned Steve Shelley. I listened to his uh, interview on Lex Friedman, which is, I'd say that that was probably one of the biggest things that started to get me like motivated in doing something for the industry. Cause that's a guy who actually dedicated himself to it. And, and he thinks, and he knows that there's problems. And like, when I heard that interview with him and he had wrote that book, which I believe is called, um, you know, look at your truck. camera, sir. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the big, yeah, that's, that's his book right there. Steve Michelle's book, <laughs> big rig, the, the rise and fall, the American dream. And I was like, <laughs> after hearing that, is when I was like, you know what? I, I want to get motivated on this because there's a lot of problems in the industry. Uh, and then, and really just, and just from doing this, from recording the podcast, getting involved on social media and stuff, that's how we cross, cross paths. So you're involved in it. There are problems in this industry. I talk about them a lot on the podcast. I talk about hours of service. I talk about brokers. I talk about the, you know, the threats from technology. Uh, you talk a lot, you know, let's, you know, let's dive, dive right into that. Kind of like the conversation you had had on odd lots. I mean, you, you, you kind of started with it first. So the, this idea of technology, what, you know, this tech is being developed and technology is getting better, but it's not helping the industry overall. It's uh, I think it's only helping companies bottom line. It's actually, yeah, it depends on which way you're looking at it from. Right. Um, the thing is, is trucking companies. Oh man. We're going we're gonna to have to drill down a little bit here. I have to set this up properly. So a lot of people talk about deregulation, right? 1980 Motor Carrier Act, Jimmy Carter, they deregulate trucking. So anybody can now start their own trucking company. Um, the government no longer sets rates. Um, the companies that do have authority cannot stop other companies from entering the market. Changes everything. Takes a few years, but like it, it takes a few years to shake out. But what happens is, and this is an interesting idea that like you'll find in uh, Michael Belzer's book, Sweatshop on Wheels, and it's a little bit present in Vichelli's book, and it's also more present in this other book by a woman named Karen Levy, which just came out, but I have an advanced copy of it. But anyway, it's something that tracks with an observation I've made over my entire life in the business is that especially amongst larger trucking companies um, because the government no longer regulates who can get in the business and any, anybody can get in, which is sort of good, but sort of not in a way. And what happens is, as we all know, like people in the business like to use terms like bottom feeders, yahoos, you know, fly by night operations, these guys that get into the business that maybe aren't in it for the right reasons 
or don't know anything about trucking and don't represent it very well. So what happens is, is the government has now has to contend with all of the mistakes, um, accidents, crashes, um, the sort of externalized costs of the deregulated business, right? And so a lot of larger companies now have these massive compliance departments and health and safety managers and like, you know, there's all these like actuarial people within their insurance companies trying to figure out like what's the best way to like make sure guys don't get in, involved in accidents and how do we avoid these, you know, nuclear verdicts. And so uh, one of the tools they use to do that is all the surveillance technology just to keep monitoring guys because the old tool that they don't want to use, which is like my thesis here in my project in life, is to train people properly and have better quality people behind the wheel. So when you don't have people who have been trained properly and you don't have those higher quality people, you do have all these problems and they're using technology as a way to try and correct for that. But the problem is in using all of this technology, they've basically taken all your agency away and they drive guys like me and other older dudes I know just out of the business. Because, you know, if you've been around long enough, you'll hear the old guys say, oh, it's not fun anymore. And, you know, I, every time I get back to the yard, I got to listen to some person that's like gone over all of the sudden stop records on the truck. And they're asking me why I rolled through the stop sign. And, you know, why'd you hit your brakes so hard? So like all of this surveillance technology it isn't just the tech. What it's doing is it's empowering another case of people that is your managers, your health and safety people to just give you a hard time. And as you know, trucking is already a hard enough job. You spend lots of time away from home. You have to deal with like crappy people at distribution centers and various facilities that like hold you up or give you attitude or take forever to load you bad drivers, the cops, like, our job's hard enough as it is without then having to go home and then deal with the folks that are ostensibly on your side, as in the managers at your company, who now, even though they don't look at it this way, they have now weaponized all this surveillance technology to like give you even more of a hard time. So like I say, my, my, my project here is to like highlight these contradictions and, you know, read up as much about it as I can, you know, bring the receipts and try and make the case that like, I think we're being like sold a bill of goods with the, the sort of claims of all the tech bros. And like, you know, I like Elon Musk for a number of reasons, but some of, but like his Tesla semi thing is a little bit like, dude, <laughs> talk, talk, talk to a trucker before you like unleash this thing on your design team, please. <laughs> no, I, um, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I've been I've been going off about the the Tesla and the Tesla semi truck on Instagram, yeah, well, and yeah, I mean that's just one symptom of it, right? But like, there's this whole idea like they're they're gonna replace us with robots soon, which is I think a little bit oversold. And I mean, never mind just truckers. Like, let's set us aside for a minute. You know, humanity is kind of approaching this sort of inflection point where how much of this stuff is going to get automated? Like in the last couple of weeks, this AI chat GPT program came out 
and like everyone's losing their mind because like you can ask it any question and it'll give you an answer. Now, sometimes the answer's pretty low quality and it's not going to replace as many people as they think. But like, you know, at, at some point, like the creations of man are going to be a threat to man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, how many movies do we need to make about this stuff? I say it all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's like if the tech because if the tech keeps advancing on this same pathway, yeah, how long be- how long before it becomes a threat to people's, you know, not not only just people's jobs but people's overall safety, you know, especially when you get into legal and law and stuff like that, like how, how far are we willing to go with this shit? That that's my all all thing. It's like where are we going with the purpose and meaning of life? Are we really making life better? Is it making life better? You know, maybe medically yeah that stuff is in it's like it that's depends well thing, there's but... a there's a there's there's definitely a um there's a cost benefit with all of this stuff right and i i think what happens is is that the input of the people who are being affected isn't taken into consideration which is uh, a downstream function of other things happening in society including like a pretty glo- a, a pretty massive and growing class divide. And when I say class, I don't mean necessarily in the old, like, well, the rich people have all the money and the poor people don't, but like there, there's, there's a bunch of different factors involved in class. And one of the things that'll come through quite quickly to anybody that follows my Twitter, that uh, it's, it's not just that it's there's, 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 it, it's about the job you have, uh, the credentials you have and the sort of case you grew up in. So like a lot of the people who manage trucking and are trying to like manage the working class in general are not of us. And they, they, they sort of have grown up amongst themselves and they're amongst the sort of like elite for a lack of a better word, even though I don't think they're very elite. Um, and they just don't, they don't understand what it's like to be in the material economy. They don't understand blue collar working class culture. And they just, they accept the notion of like any form of technology as a good in and of itself. It's like an unquestioned premise, right? So they think that they can just like, oh, we're just going to put this um, driver facing camera in your truck. It's facing the other way too. And it's going to make sure that like, it's going to help you be more safe. But yeah, they didn't, they didn't consider that maybe the guy sitting in the wheel for behind the wheel for 11 hours a day and living in the bunk immediately behind it might not want to be watched all day long. But they don't care because they're not the people doing the work. They've never got their hands dirty. They just they just like I said, they're a different case of people and they have no considerations for those whom they're claiming to manage. And I, if I have one project, it's to keep them the fuck as far away from us as possible. Pardon my French. No, that's it. No, we, yeah, we know holds bar on this, uh, on this podcast. I I'm absolutely with you on that. There's uh, these people almost like, it's like the trust the science crowd all the time where it's just with, uh, with absolute, with absolutism. It's, Oh, this tech company got a, but they got millions of funding from uh, a bunch of venture capitalists. So it must mean that if they got all these millions of dollars and it broke through and now it has an IPO or it's public or our company's buying it, it means it's good. Like it just, it's like it automatically passes this threshold of it'll help drivers, even though drivers weren't even involved in the, in the, yeah, airport. exactly. Well, like I say, and it, it does, it's not just limited to truck drivers. This is across like all different 
workspaces and you know different parts of society and like i say it's it's part of this like unquestioned sort of cliche that you know technology good technological progress good more computers good well at some point you like reach a point of diminishing returns with that stuff and but because those diminishing returns don't affect them necessarily or as quickly or they don't have to bear the brunt of you know there's like the whole social thing right like there's like there's there's pride and privacy and agency and all of the things you have as an individual and they don't quite understand that all that stuff gets chipped away at with the imposition of all these things right like you get in a a 2023 model truck and if it's specced and equipped the way a lot of companies have it it's got lane control assistance and front collision avoidance and you know it interferes with the gas pedal it has a possibly a driver facing camera in it has an eld in it it's got all this monitoring software that your dispatch and managers can see back in the office that tracks every single thing you do there's this stuff called Omnitracks and like the, over and above all of the like granular data that it picks up from you driving the truck. They have these like algorithms and programs in the back that can basically take guesses at what's going on with you and your life. There was a passage. Uh, I took a photo from Karen Levy's book, put it on Twitter a few days ago, where they have these algorithms that can like they're, 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 they're now playing psychologist without actually talking to you. So oh, yeah, like, I remember you had sent me this. Yeah. Depending, depending on like, you know, your driving habits, um, how they are now versus how they were before they can sort of predict if you're just like either having a bad day or maybe you're thinking about quitting or maybe you're having some problems at home and then you start getting phone calls. Is everything Okay. And then they have these people who are like coaches for lack of a better word at some companies whose job it is to like try and convince you not to quit. You know, like, I mean, they don't do it. They don't do the thing that might actually get you to stick around, which is pull all of this garbage out of the truck and treat you like a human being. Like that's off the table. Right. And this is the problem. Another thing that like, I don't think people understand and this comes into this ties into a little bit of the current argument going on with like the Twitter files and all this uh, revealed collusion between the Democrats and executives at Twitter is you'll get these like libertarians of convenience that say, well, Twitter is just a private company. Well, not one half of its management team are like died in the wool Democrats who've like made it quite obvious that like their allegiances are what the political party and not the company. And, and yeah, and they have former former federal employees who and all there. the yeah. and all the FBI and CIA spooks and the list goes on. And the but what, another another thing that goes along with that is this concept of nudging, where you know you get you get people to accept things they otherwise wouldn't accept or to change their behavior or to adapt to a technology by just nudging them. You don't make it quite mandated. You don't put it in law. You just kind of like set everything up so that they have no way of getting around it. And then eventually after everybody accepts it, they just kind of slip it into some legislation somewhere and now it's law and there was nothing you can do about it. And so you have the same thing with technology and um, certain policies within trucking and certain laws where they just, you know, 
let, let, let's try it out. So like, you know, Werner had e-logs, what, 15 years ago? And yeah, I had heard it. I had heard that e-logs is what saved Werner from bankruptcy. Essentially. Yeah, well, well, I think I think they're one of these huge companies that's like a prime example of the problems I talk about. They get so big and they get so addicted to the churn retention model and sucking off the government tit with corporate welfare and subsidies and grants and all that to train more people because they don't like keep anybody around. And then that comes with when you when you keep sucking up people, you know, like you end up grabbing a whole lot of people that shouldn't be behind the wheel of a truck and then they make their way through the system and get in accidents and then you kill people and you have nuclear verdicts and then the government comes along and says well how about you take this and then we won't put you out of business well so werner might be that werner was the first big carrier to voluntarily take e-logs on and then what do you know a few years later um the obama administration um, puts this requirement to look into e-logs. Um, the first time they tried to do it, it got fought by a lawsuit brought by OIDA, and then it came back again, and now it's the law of the land. So what was originally, you know, oh, we'll just try this out, and this one company, it's just going to be them. We don't have to worry about it. Well, now it's everybody. And that's what happens with every one of these technologies. And like I keep saying to people, if we don't, like, put your foot down and start saying no, you know, the, the driver facing cameras that are in X percentage of trucks sooner or later, that'll be the law of the land. Right. Like that they means, always, yeah. yeah, they always say, oh, this is just voluntary. And if you don't like it, you can go work somewhere else. Yeah. For now. Yeah. Eventually, eventually that kind of stuff get, go, goes away. And that's uh, unfortunately the, the way things are going. And what's unfortunate is because that we've, like you talked about on Odd Lots, we've developed this culture of churn and burn. It's pushed the professional who would say no out of the industry. So because when it gets to that point, the people who've been around a while are just like, well, you know what? I'm close to retirement or, you know, I could go work for a buddy or something and they go away. So you're just left with guys who've only been driving for three months and they don't know the wiser. So they're just going to get rolled on with this new regulation. And so anything that comes along, it's just going to, they're just going to have to roll over and take it. Whereas... You know, you when you change the training modules, when you change the pay, when you change how shippers and receivers do it, when you make it better for the driver. See, that's the thing. And I talk about it a lot when the when the industry was better for the driver. And this is before deregulation, when it was a when it was a career to be a professional driver, drivers had a lot more power. The labor kind of ran things in the trucking industry and things were, were, did run better. There were less accidents. There were less this. But now. Yeah, it's kind of switched and we put it in the hands. And because there, there were issues happening, because they changed things, they, you know, because that's the thing. Deregulation is when government did get involved. Like people think it's like, oh, they deregulated the market. No, that that opened up the door for the government to come in because they needed to come in and be the saviors of all the new problems. And now this right. is where we are. Yeah, well, this is this is what I was getting to before. And um, Be Be Belzer in his book uh, refers to it as a, a shift from you know, a uh, state regulation to market regulation to social regulation. Um, he's got a couple of different ways of looking at it. You know, Vichelli says the same thing. And it's like, yeah, yeah, they deregulated the entry to the market. They deregulated the rates, but then they just shifted the regulation to us, right? And, well, that's awesome, isn't it? So the guys in the suits that own the company could get off scot-free, treat us all like garbage, not pay us enough. 
hire mule and cabbages that shouldn't be on the road and that's fine but i gotta run a gauntlet of freaking scales and cops and have this camera looking at me all day long now that's not a very good deal and i mean back to that thread like i understand why guys are somewhat skeptical of unions you know i am too i'm i sort of have no opinion on that i'm I, i'm neither way i i remain agnostic however you know um driver facing cameras so in the province of quebec uh i don't know if it was the teamsters or some other union um the big uh, food distribution company cisco yeah cisco tried to impose driver facing cameras on all their drivers in canada and and cisco is a huge company they're all over the united states they're all over canada they're like one of the biggest biggest food service companies in the world and the Quebec union that represents the drivers in Quebec took Cisco to court and beat them and, and had an injunction. Now I think it's being appealed, but for now driver facing cameras are illegal. Yeah. Right? They no go. No union that never would have happened. And it would have become the law of the land. Right. You know, so I'm, like, I'm yeah, I'm with you as much, as much as like, you know, unions come with their own unique set of problems. They will if they're run by the right people defend us on the good stuff. Now, again, um, uh, it's not that clear cut because another issue going in the other direction, the unions really dropped the ball with the vaccine mandates, right? Every union in Canada caved to the government and said, yeah, all of our employees should just go get the shot. Like your bodily autonomy as a worker was thrown out the fucking window by union leadership across the board everywhere in Canada. They, none of them fought back against it. So, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Sometimes they'll go against the interests of, of other people. Like it, there's not enough, like, that's the thing. There are, there is no altruistic, uh, you know, vision of unions. I think they operated probably best, you know, in the fifties, sixties and seventies, but like, um, yeah, nowadays, some unions are political slush funds. Uh, some do uh, enable, you know, you know, poor work. But at the end of the day, like you said, there are a lot of times where, hey, no, we're going to back up our workforce, like with the driver facing cameras. But, you know, and like I said, when it when it comes to things like the vaccine, yeah, it's all about body. It should be it should be a, a choice to certain people, especially some, you know, especially because it's a new technology and you can almost compare it to what we were just talking about. I mean, this this vaccine was new technology, kind of like this new technology going into trucking. And it's like, you know, you're just supposed to take it at absolute face value, you know, in a, a short amount of time. And yeah, and the union kind of just caved on it, uh, you know, so it does come with its with its good, you know, with its good and, and bad. So uh, with that, you know, we, you know, talking about, you know, is the answer unions or not? So we have these problems of the long wait times of uh, driver pay. You know, you said you're working on some projects. Uh, what, you know, what, what are ways, you know, what are ways anybody can get involved? How can we solve these issues? Um, you know, what do you oh, see man. as a plan? What do you see as a plan going forward? <laughs> Million dollar question. Um, well, the the the, the problem the problem is is that the problems are distributed and the paths to solutions are also distributed right like um trying to get the government to do things for you is very difficult um so i don't know if necessarily legislation is going to work although you know i've i've been doing some 
uh, writing and reporting on this thing called the Guaranteeing Overtime for Truckers Act here in the U.S. This guy, uh, uh, former, well, I guess he's about to be out in January. He got primaried out of his seat. His name's Andy Levin. He's a Democrat from Michigan. And in, pardon me. <clears throat> in April, he introduced uh, into the House this legislation called the Guaranteeing Overtime for Truckers Act, which is supposed to remove the exemption in the 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act, which prevents truck drivers, interstate truck drivers from being uh, paid overtime. And I think like, I think that might help because I'm going to try and make a case in a couple of places I've written stuff um, for you and your listeners is that that exemption is part of the reason why we have pay per mile rather than pay per hour. And it's a part of the reason why nobody values our time. Because if you don't have to pay people overtime, if there's no mandate or compulsion to respect our time, nobody's going to do it. I mean, a small number of people do. There's some guys that do get paid overtime. Um, very small number. But like, unless there's a cost associated with our time sitting at docks, the people that run the docks have got no reason to give a shit, right? Like you're sitting there, doesn't cost them anything. Why change, right? So if this legislation passes, and again, it's one line, remove the exemption, no taxes, no pork. It's not part of like some omnibus bill. that's like 17,000 pages that nobody reads and does all kinds of other dirty nonsense, which the government is very guilty of doing that all the time. I get that. Um, so if this bill passes, then it becomes the law of the land. You know, a lot of people say, well, we get paid by piecework. Well, you got a calculator out. You can like work out, you can prorate people's mileage rates, calculate an hour figure, and then add 0.5 to that for your overtime pay, right? And um, there's a lot of people who are owner operators who would be exempt from that, which is true. But if, if it becomes the law of the land, all the big guys all the big freight carriers that employ drivers will then have to account for their, for their overtime. And if their marginal, if their sort of operating ratio is so marginal, they're going to have to start increasing their rates to account for that time. If in fact their customers don't use the threat of paying more to like tighten their operations up and get you moving faster, because that would actually almost be a better result. But if those rates have to go up, that permeates across the industry, right? Then the rate floor starts to come up, right? Like there's a concept in um, economics called wage floors, like where it concerns, you know, labor and whatnot. And, you know, the wage floor is determined by a number of factors in any, you know, economic setting. And truckers wage floor, all wage floors are set by the lowest common denominator. Whoever's like doing the cheapest, and has the most influence in an industry, that's where the wage floor starts. And then maybe some other people pay more depending on what industry they're in or how well they look after their people. And that's fine. But like if the, uh, an argument some guys used to say to me would be like, well, I haul, I haul specialty chemicals in a tanker and I get paid X number of dollars an hour and I get looked after. So like, I don't care. The problem is you would still be getting paid more because the rates that, your specialty carrier are building on are built on top of the wage floor for everybody else. So if the wage floor goes up, 
in theory, your wages should go up as well. So like, I, I, I think uh, one tool to help improve a lot of truck drivers would be passing this guaranteeing overtime for truckers act. Um, another one obviously is just like, I mean, it doesn't necessarily work unless a lot of people do it is voting with your feet. Right. I work for a guy who very much thinks like me, his trucks don't have ELDs. His trucks don't have cameras. His trucks don't even have the little trackers on them for calculating your fuel tax. I have to write down my mileage every time I cross into Pennsylvania and come back so he can sort out his fuel tax for New York and PA because he's just as paranoid of the government as I am. He's got no tracking, nothing on his truck. It's a truck. Done. The only technology on it is the goddamn DEF system that breaks down all the time. You know, um, so vote with your feet and work for people like him. You know, um, drive older trucks, uh, work for people that, um, you know, are willing to put their money into older equipment or buy glider kits with pre-99 engines. You know, do what you can as far as you can as being an individual with agency to avoid all this crap, which in turn sends the message that you don't want anything to do with it. Right. Um, Just keep talking about this stuff, you know, like unless you're discussing the issues and you know, I mean, whatever, I don't want to toot my own horn, but like I went on odd lots, you know, the guy who hosts odd lots has like 335,000 Twitter followers and he gets listened to by all these like various market and industry people. You know, if you make enough noise, eventually you attract their attention and you know, somebody might, listen <laughs> exactly so, no that's that's what and, i'm doing and, and, and reconsider what's going on so yeah there's a whole bunch of things little things we can do will any of them work on their own i don't know but you know no harm talking about it no you you got to do it I, I we mentioned it before we you know started recording that that's why i'm doing what i'm doing you know, i listened to that lex friedman podcast i had um you know i had gotten a lot of help from truckers and their content and then you know, it's just there's issues. And the only way to talk about them is if people talk about them. I mean, we see it happen all the time in media. You know, we when you know, when things go viral or like when, you know, and I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the cancel culture, but that's what that's how that's how cancel culture seems to work is enough people talk about it and people want, you know, this person's career ended. And it's just if enough drivers talk about it, eventually people are going to have to listen, you know, and that's I, I, that's kind I, of what I, we need to change. <laughs> You know, I don't want anybody canceled, but it would be nice, like, you know, lots of people yap on social media, whatever. I'm just as guilty as the next guy. Um, You know, uh, Robin Hutchison, who is the new leader of the FMCSA, she's on Twitter. Uh, (laughs) Oh, good. I'm going to start start atting her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll be like. You know, listen to us, please listen to us. Don't listen to the American Trucking Association. Don't listen to the executives. They're not the ones out here having to deal with all your dictates. The executives and managers at large fleets, they're beholden to their insurance companies and their accountants and shareholders and all that other garbage. They're not the guys that have to live out here. You know, how long how long has it been since you've been home? Uh, well, let's see. Technically, well, over a week, basically. Right. And so uh, you're, you're, you're out on the road week in, week out, putting up with all this 
you know, just life on the road. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad, but there's like a lot of obstacles in your way that don't need to be there. Right. Yeah. So there's, like, there's, yeah. It doesn't make it any easier. You're already not home. And then there's already stuff that's stacked against you to, you know, prevent you from just working, you know, from your autonomy. Yeah, exactly. So like, we need to get it through to these guys that like, they want to make things better. Well, the, the model of the last few decades of, well, let's just hire any biped off the street with a heartbeat and get them a CDL and just keep throwing bodies into the machine. And then when that doesn't work uh, and we keep having accidents and turnover and everyone's standing around scratching their head going, well, why does my company have a hundred percent driver turnover? Well, you know, uh, that's not working. And, oh, we just got a bunch of nuclear verdicts. I guess we better put ELDs in the truck. Well, no, we've now had ELDs for four years. The accidents never went away. There's no evidence that they've done anything. And something that really annoys the crap out of me, and you alluded to this earlier, like trust the science. Trust the science. Okay. Well, statistics are part of science. And statistics can tell you all kinds of things about what's really happening in material reality. All of the statistics show that the imposition of this technology, of all of this surveillance onto us humans, has done zero to improve any of the problems that they claimed that they were going to improve. So maybe we should reconsider them and not mandate them. But that doesn't ever seem to happen because the people who invoke science, invoke statistics, are full of shit. They're not doing it to improve anything. They're doing it because it's a system of control and it makes it look like they're doing something because the doing of something that's real, the actual solutions are going to cost them money and they're going to have to listen to people like us and they're going to have to concede that maybe they don't actually know what they're talking about or know what they're doing, right? But their vanity won't let them do that. And again, this um, culture of being enthralled to tech, of being stuck in their own class position, in their own case, doesn't allow them to face material reality. So they're just going to keep throwing bodies at the problem, and they're just going to keep saying, believe the science, you know, all the thought-terminating cliches without actually fixing anything. And we need to keep screaming from the rooftops. There was a real good article. Um, I don't know if it was Landline or, like, I think it was, it was one of the OIDA guys that like lined up all the studies and all the statistics showing guys, this ELD mandate's not doing anything at all. No, no reduction in crashes, no reduction in this actual increases in speeding, um, aggressive driving and all the problems downstream of it. Like everything in the world of science and statistics shows that none of these mandates have done a damn thing. We have to keep screaming that from the rooftops until these guys start listening. No, you're you're 100 right. Yeah, you're you're speaking my language on that. I I I couldn't agree more. And I because I fear that the next thing coming is you know these speed limiters that people are talking about, and that's the next oh. that's going to be the next ELD thing is the speed limiters. And if enough people it's, and like the FMCSA already heard, they're hearing these complaints about about how it won't work and it won't do anything basing it off of hey elds aren't even working the fmcsa is still like oh well we're gonna just test it next year and it's you know well, how about how, how about testing i mean something i've been saying for years um test graduated licensing um make it so that 
you know, you can't just walk waltz into a truck driving school, do a six week course and get turned loose on the road. Make it so that you have to spend six months working in a local capacity or six months with a class B. You're only driving like a little local dump truck or a local FedEx delivery truck or something for six months or a year. And then you can go and do your test for pulling a trailer. And then you get restricted to like a hundred, 150 mile radius of home. So that if you have any trouble, you're not so far away from home and just walk away from the truck and want to quit. Or if you're somebody from the South, your company sends you to Michigan in the middle of winter and you have no idea how to drive in the snow. Like how about instead of doing tech stuff, we just regulate things differently and make people better drivers. You know, that might work. Why don't we try that? No, it's, just, it's so much easier for them to yep. say, uh, just plug a speed limiter into your truck. I mean, yeah, just put the speed limiter. It, it, that's it. The problem solved. Yeah. They won't, yeah, they won't and, be and, able to and, go that fast in the snow. Yeah. And, and speed limiters, like I'm from Ontario originally. They brought speed limiters. They made speed limiters the law of the land in Canada, in Ontario and Quebec in like 2000 and oh man, eight or nine or five anywhere, somewhere in the mid to late 2000s. And at first, they uh, there, there was already a pre-existing downward trend in accidents versus miles driven in Ontario and Quebec that was happening before they'd even imposed the mandate. They imposed the speed limiters, that downward trend continues. And then they point to it and say, Oh, look, the speed limiters worked. Yeah. We're, well, the, her couple, we're the heroes. Yeah. We're the heroes. But a couple of years later, the accident statistics start going back up again and they've been going up and you know, there's more accidents in Ontario and Quebec than there's ever been. Well, I don't know about Quebec, but in Ontario anyway, I mean, the truck accidents are just off the charts. And it's got yeah. nothing to do. And it's got nothing to do with the, the speed limiters. Didn't do anything, you know. The the the, the deeper question that they don't want to tackle is again, you know, Canada has the same problem with uh, truck drive, well, fly by night truck driving schools and really poor standards for drivers. You know, there's uh, quite a few people on the road that maybe shouldn't be, but that that's that's the third rail, man. Because now you get into questions of like, well. Who are these drivers? Where did they come from? What's, you know, what, what are their other skill levels? Who's paying for them? Who's in control of all of these systems? You know, it opens up a can of worms that the government doesn't want to deal with and the mega carriers definitely don't want to deal with. So it's just oh, easier, yeah. easier to say, put your speed limiter on there. All right. Yeah, it's easy. Boom. The quickest fix because, because in reality, and this is just a life lesson or with anything you want to do, if you want to build a business, it takes extreme ownership, admitting fault, making an action plan, you know, you know, looking at data and research it. Yeah, it, it takes that. And we used to be a country, at least the United States that, that did do that, especially in the post world, post World War II sense coming out of things like the great depression, we had to fix a lot of things. And now that's gone away. Now it's just, okay, we need the quickest fix. And like, like that and not just trucking is suffering from this everywhere else is but man you you couldn't say like the professionalism taken out of the driver you're not otr you know anymore but you go to any one of these truck stops you talk to a new driver they're freaking scared man there's your 23 year old kids probably from india a lot of them immigrants they've never driven in utah now all of a sudden they're working you know they're on these big lanes going through ice and you know uh that uh that dangerous pass up there by Reno and yeah, and they're crashing, killing people because they, in the last, they've never even driven a car in the United States. 
They come from, and then they come from India. They go to a, a school for six weeks, and now all of a sudden they're on the most dangerous roads. You can't be in the largest vehicle ever, weighing eighty thousand pounds. Yeah. And, so uh, spe- yeah. Speaking speaking of India, and this is not to criticize India or anyone from there, but I'll give you a little story from Canada. Um, there's a lot of Indian truckers in Canada, lots of guys from the Sikh community, and a lot of them are just fine and are just fine quality drivers, no problem. Um, there was an investigation, however, a number of years ago by a journalist from Canada's biggest newspaper. They're called the Globe and Mail. And they were trying to figure out why um, all of these Indian guys were overrepresented in accidents, especially in British Columbia, especially in the mountains. Again, like you say, uh, road conditions. And what they found out is there's these indentured servitude programs. Uh, Another way of looking at it might be to call it human trafficking. So um, a number of Indian trucking companies in British Columbia were taking advantage of a, a, a provincial federal program where the province, the provincial labor board will go to the feds and say, we are short of these types of skilled people in our economy. And can we work with the feds and then get work visas for people to bring them to our province through this provincially run program? Well, we come to find out that a bunch of Indian trucking companies in the lower mainland in the area around Vancouver are going back to India, hiring basically illiterate young guys off the street in India and saying, we will get you to Canada as a truck driver. But when you come here, you work for us. You only work for us. We take your paycheck and don't give it to you until we're done paying for the visa that we got through the province. And then, you know, basically we own you. Right. And if you don't do as we tell you, we just cancel your visa and send you back to India. Oh right? man. This is so, this, there's a journalist who's like looking into this right yeah, now. No, there was a, there was a whole newspaper article. I'll send it to you after in, in, in the Globe and Mail in 2019 that documented oh, the whole thing, like brought all the receipts. And you know what, you know what's happened with that since then? Probably nothing. Yeah, nothing. probably jack shit. So, you know, we have uh, Mr. Blackface Trudeau, who dressed himself up with a turban and painted his face black and is somehow still considered woke with his rainbow socks and all the rest of it. Um, he's done nothing about it. His government's done nothing about it. The programs are all still in place. Nobody's ever been held to account. And you talk to drivers in B.C. And, you know, it's, it's not racism to point out that like a certain demographic of people keep getting accidents in these passes in BC and causing trouble. And it's not because they're Indian. It's because they're subject to these indentured servitude programs. And then they get a license through a dodgy truck driving school in Surrey or Calgary or wherever. And they just get let loose to drive in the mountains in conditions they've never driven in before. Um, Does that say anything about their race or ethnicity? No, it says something about this structural problem we have and people taking advantage of it to try and get freight moved to make money. Right? Exa- yeah, exactly. When yeah, when you're literally employing slaves, uh, that's what you're doing. Yeah, it has nothing to do with their ethnic background. It has everything to do with the fact that you just brought in, yeah, when you bring in somebody to someplace they've never been, you put them up in the, the Rocky Mountains and they don't even speak the, the language. Yeah, and they're, and they're essentially slaves. 
yeah, they're going to be the your highest percentage of accidents. Similar things have happened in the U.S. There's that driving school in Pennsylvania with fraudulent CDLs. I know that this has happened in California with some of the Punjab uh, Indian companies. They've uh, fraudulently, you know, they've there's a lot of fraudulent CDLs where guys will go take the tests because they have similar names and stuff like that. But yeah, well, I, think, I, think, I think I think I think I think the Russians and the Belarusians and Slovaks and all these guys in Chicago are doing the same thing. Um, oh yeah, not, big time. Not, not to, to not, and again, it's not to to, to besmirch where they come from. It's just the, the the immigrant trucking communities. Often enough, you know, you'll get these guys that come here and they want to make a better life for themselves, and that's great. You know, I am a hundred percent for that. You want to come here and try out driving truck, good, but do it the way we do it, and then. Don't turn around and take advantage of your homeboys back home that also want to come to America or Canada and then treat them like crap so that you can make money, right? There was another uh, article, a series of articles in USA Today, uh, 2017, by this investigative journalist named Brett Murphy. And he was looking at the treatment of drivers at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. And, you know, the guys who are working, they're literally chained to their trucks. They're working 18, 20 hours a day. And, you know, he would find stuff like, you know, these guys would come from Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador or Mexico. They come to California and they end up in L.A. And, you know, maybe they drove truck where they're from. Maybe they didn't, whatever. And they come to work for these small guys working off the ports. Yeah, like and, one authority, 10 trucks, and they, they just rip containers. Right, right. And what, what Murphy would find is that these guys were just getting worked to get worked to, to almost to death and getting paid next to nothing. And, you know, these guys would come back home, come back to their yard. Let's say they've worked 14, 15, 16 hours driving around Los Angeles and probably not even driving, probably sitting in line at the port for half the time and come back to their company's uh, office and all the employee cars are locked behind a fence. Like the Damn. guy who owned the company would be like, no, 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 you're not going home. Have a little snooze in the truck. And in five hours, get back out there, get back in line at the port. We got containers to move and they're getting paid by the move, which means all that waiting time they're not getting paid for. And then, you know, these little container companies are also in on the lease operator scam where like they'll lease you the truck but then they own you, right? Like, you know, you, you're, you're getting paid so little for these container moves, but you also own the truck. So now you're on the hook for the maintenance and the fuel. And a lot of these container guys that were investigated by this Brett Murphy fellow, you know, they're in debt. Like they keep working and they're losing money and they owe the company they work for money for the truck. <laughs> and they're, yeah, and no, they're, man. they're literally, they're literally slaves. Right. And it always keeps happening with an, an, an unfortunate reality is, is that newer arrivals to America that want to come and, and chase the American dream. And again, fair play to them. But unfortunately, some of them are shady operators and take advantage of their own. Right. They just oh, yeah. they just they just yep. abuse their own people because the guys that are already here know the guys that are the newest arrivals from home don't know any better. Right. So it's sort of a it's sort of the same thing that the megas are doing like, you know, white guy, big trucking companies that, that 
take advantage of all the new entrants at the bottom end of the industry, you know, flip them over, churn them out. Well, these immigrant communities that are involved in the trucking industry are doing the same thing. They're just drawing their pool of new entrants, new labor from recent arrivals because those guys don't know any better. Yeah, which almost which actually proves that, yeah, they, there actually is no racism involved in it. So whether it's Werner or whether it's, yeah, the other guy who came from Serbia who's doing it to, to his, you know, to his, but it's like because of how the system's set up, it's happening at every level you look at right. from, the yeah, mega, no, from the mega carriers down to the, even the small, these small carriers. Down yeah, to the no, the, 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 the systems of abuse are colorblind. The only color they understand is green. Yeah, right? now you're and absolutely to, right. And how to extract as much out of that from the people they're abusing beneath them, right? <coughs> Pardon me. Oh, wow. So where's the good news here? Tell me some good news. <laughs> oh, man, you froze up again. Yep, you're back. We're back. Yeah, that was, I'm glad I didn't have to reset. All right. So, yeah, we're so uh, onward to the good news. Where's the good news? What's the good news part of the show? <laughs> yeah, good news part of the show. Yeah, let's uh, let's leave it out. Uh, uh, yeah, I want to close it out on a cool note. Like it, you mentioned, you mentioned Trudeau, and I think Trudeau's a a, a fucking clown. Myself, uh, I told you to follow my guys at Hard Factor. They like to rip on him too uh, every now and then whenever he pops in the news. But so you, um, you know, we talked a little about uh, you know about how they felt the unions fell through kind of on the vaccine mandate. Um, you know, Canada uh, had a huge uh, you know freedom convoy thing. They probably had the one of the most successful trucker protests, uh, at least since the 70s in, in America, because uh, I'm pretty sure one of the last protests. There was a decent protest, I know, on I-5 in California for the ELD mandate, but it, it was quickly thwarted. So, I mean, I'd say the Canadian Freedom um, Convoy was 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 a, the biggest trucker protest to happen, at least in North America, for the better part of, you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, I've tried to follow it best I can. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I, I love, you know, I'm a, I'm a big American patriot myself. Uh, you know, I love, I love this country. You know, I, I served in the military. So seeing those videos got me, you know, fired and frothed up, but I almost immediately I saw media and internet sources try to turn it, turn the narrative of the freedom convoy into being some, you know, right wing, whatever, you know, Trump supporting ploy funny because Trump's not even their president. You were there. You attended the Freedom Convoy. You know, t tell me about it. How was it? How did it start? And what got you into it? So, yeah, there's there's a few there's a few crossovers between like all of the stuff we've just discussed and the Freedom Convoy. Um, but, yeah, I uh, I was paying attention to it in January when like, you know, Word started to get out on social media about these guys coming to Ottawa. So I started paying very close attention to it. And then when it, it got, it started to get real, you know, like you see all these people leaving BC and Alberta and there's these huge lines of trucks going across the prairie. And I'm like, Oh wow, this is for real. So I went home. I, uh, I drove over the border because uh, I'm, I, I'm in upstate New York. So from here to Ottawa is about a five, five and a half hour drive. And even though, you know, at the time, you know, they had the arrive can app and you're supposed to quarantine. And I didn't take the, I, I didn't take the vaccine into my life. I, I remain pure of blood. Um, they tried to give me a hard time at the border, you know, P hacks, like, where are you quarantining? What are you doing? And I just basically told them to go to hell. And I drove away because that's what I've done every time I've crossed the border, unless I've got my wife and kids with me because they're Americans. So I have to, I have to play nice, but whenever I've driven over the border by myself, I very diplomatically tell them to go and, suck shit and i drive away uh and it worked every time so i go to ottawa 
and uh, a good, very good friend of mine lives about 30 miles ish west of town and um, myself and him and a bunch of my other friends we organized and we drove out to this overpass over top of highway 417 which is the sort of west the, the it's the main interstate that kind of goes through ottawa east west on the west side of town is where the main thrust of the convoy was coming from and we stood on an overpass like you would have seen in one of these videos and i mean thousands of people on one overpass and there's like how many overpasses on the 417 coming from the west side like it, dozens hundreds and like this scene was repeated over and over just hundreds and thousands of people canadian flags on hockey sticks honking people are drinking hot chocolate and beers and whatever and i mean it was cold dude it was like minus 25 celsius plus the wind chill they were saying on local radio with the wind chill it was like well south of 30 below like it was a typical cold canadian winter day but it was sunny and bright and everyone was so cheery. And the first thing I learned from going there in person was that it wasn't even about the truckers anymore. Like it wasn't about the truckers from the beginning. The truckers were the catalyst. The truckers were the ones that got it going. But by the time they got to Ottawa, it had become this like, expression of an entire country's frustration with the COVID regime of the psychological warfare that it had been posed on us by the media, by Trudeau, by the government, by like the breakup of families on the question of vaccines or not. And like everyone had just had enough of it. Like we're done with this crap. And that came through in the support for the convoy. Like everyone was just so happy to finally see someone say, enough's enough we've had it with this crap and then so we stood on the we stood on the overpass for a couple hours you know a bunch of trucks came by i mean the convoy just went on and on and on and on, and on. like we could have been out there all night but we regrouped we went back to my buddy's house we warmed up and then we went downtown we went right into downtown ottawa right to parliament hill um, a friend of mine from alberta was there my buddy tim and he had my friend cliff's trailer he was right on wellington street right in the middle of it all and I talked with him for a while and I went down to Parliament Hill and I just like the energy was just off the charts, man. Like everybody was full of smiles. Hardly anyone was wearing a mask. Just Canadian flags and signs and just trucks everywhere honking. And like we stayed all night and these like techno raver guys had showed up and set up sound systems around the corner from Parliament. And like people were having dance parties and it was just like the most joyous thing I had ever experienced in my entire life. Like, I just couldn't believe how good everybody felt. And you just talk to people and everyone's giving each other high fives and hugs. And like, you know, it, it just felt like this is the end. It's finally over, you know. And again, I cannot reiterate this enough. It wasn't even about the truckers. They had brought it. They had brought the pain to the government. But it wasn't about them anymore. It was about Canada getting out from under the boot of Trudeau. And then, you know, I, I went back to my buddy's place. And then the next day I had to drive home. I had to come back here to the U.S. and go back to work. And immediately, <laughs> immediately, the media went into overdrive because, you know, one guy with a rebel flag with a truck imposed on it, you know. And then down the street from Parliament, 
closer to where like the Rideau Canal comes in, there's like this weird spot that's like not even anywhere near the main part of the protest. Some douchebag comes out with a Nazi flag. It was only one guy and it was only that one day and he was never seen again. To this day, they have no idea who did it. They found, they found one of the rebel flag guys. I just saw a news piece on that last night, actually. And he was just like, just some regular dude who was like, you know, like many other people, I just support the idea of rebels and secession and telling the government to get lost. And that's why I brought my, you know, stars and bars. But, you know, the, the media immediately went into overdrive to set this narrative that like we're all Nazis, you know, and, and that that narrative, that's personal because a bunch of my family believes it. Like a bunch of my cousins that I used to be really close, close with, they've stopped talking to me because they think I'm a Nazi, even though, hello, my wife is Jewish. Um, like, uh, but you know, the, these mind viruses get into people so quickly and like, it's literally separated members of my family from each other because they bought the idea that, you know, the trucker convoy was a bunch of Nazis and why aren't you just taking the jab and doing what you're supposed to do for everyone else's health, even though the vaccine doesn't prevent transmission and doesn't prevent you from getting infected. And even though until the freedom convoy, you know, truckers are essential workers and we all love our essential workers. And thank you for working so hard. And thank you for going to distribution centers and sitting there for six hours waiting to get unloaded and not be allowed to use the bathroom because COVID paranoia wouldn't let you even come into our facilities. And drivers basically who are already being treated like shit for their entire careers got treated like shit some more during COVID. But nobody knows that because the media decided that we're Nazis instead of essential workers at the drop of a hat. It's amazing how it's it's, amazing how quick that narrative turned. It it happened so fast. I watched it happen in real time because I remember even my wife was sending me videos of it and about how awesome it was. And I remember like this one video, it was an overpass video and it was, it was like bringing me to tears. It was like a combination of interviews. And like, I remember seeing watching the buildup of this convoy and yeah, within a matter of just, 48 hours that like major media outlets and American media outlets just immediately spun it into, Oh, this is right wing Nazi. And it's like, wait a minute. Do you even have any journalists there? It's like, how did you get there that fast? Who are you interviewing? It's like, it's almost insane because, and that's where I think well, social media is destroying. Yeah. Well, but. there's, it's not even just social media. It's the regular media. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named Curtis Yarvin. He's this sort of like dissident writer thinker guy. A number of years ago, he came out with this neologism called the cathedral as a way to describe the sort of intersection between government, academics, and the media, and how they all sort of work together to like set policy, set narratives, control society. And, you know, the Canadian media, there's a cathedral in Canada. I call it Cathedral Nord. Nord is the French word for North. And um, they, you know, it was proven. So the, I, I, the Freedom Convoy got terminated by Trudeau invoking this thing called the Emergencies Act. Everybody heard about how he froze bank accounts. And then like the cops came through Ottawa and kicked everybody out and they towed the trucks away and everybody drove away. And that was the end of it. Well, in this inquiry into the use of that act, all of the receipts started to dribble out. So Trudeau's safety minister is this guy named Marco Mendocino. And there was emails and text messages shown between Mendocino's staff and members of the media, like 
four or five days before the convoy even got to Ottawa, they were already plotting and scheming to create a narrative to say that we are a bunch of extremists and right-wing wackos. They were plotting to say that about us, the government and the media working together, plotting to dismiss us before the convoy even got to Ottawa. Yeah, they had the inside base. Yeah, they had the game plan already drawn out. They already had the game plan drawn out. And the funny thing, and I'm gonna, I'm never gonna stop banging on about this. We were called fascists. If you look at the original definition of fascism and the progenitors of it in Italy and in like the early progressive movement in the late 19th and 20th century, who are the like OG granddaddies of what fascism was to become, if you understand your history, the Original One of the original pillars of fascism is this idea that government and corporations work together to manage society without any democratic input, right? We are going to run the show because we are the captains of industry. We know what's good for everybody and the government. We're going to like work with them and we run things. That's one of the original pillars of fascism. What do we see here? We see Trudeau working with the pharmaceutical companies, working with the tech companies to create his ArriveCan app, which you were supposed to put on your phone so they can track your health when you come into Canada, working with the pharmaceutical industry to like make all these vaccines you're all supposed to take. Huh? Oh, Trudeau is also an investor in a comp- in two companies that are like behind the lipid nanoparticles that they use to deliver the RNA message that's part of the whole vaccine program. Wow, conflict of interest much? And so, like, we have all of this crossover between the government and corporations and especially the media to manage society. The Canadian government gives money to the media. During COVID, the Canadian media was losing money. Well, I mean, they were losing money before, but certain large newspapers, websites, TV networks have gotten hundreds of millions of dollars in subsidies out of the government. This is over and above the fact that the Canadian government has its own media, the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which receives like one point, I don't even know how many billions of dollars a year out of the Canadian taxpayer, right? So we have this literal fascist system that we're operating under. The Freedom Convoy comes along to oppose it. And then the media calls us fascists. <laughs> like yeah, they're in, Funny they're, how that works. They're inverting reality and inverting definitions, right? Yeah. Like, it, it, it's enough to make your head spin. No, that, that type of stuff makes my head explode quite often. And I, I, I do think about it a lot. Uh, you know, there's other there's other guys I follow who share the same sentiment. And it's, it's sad it happened. Um, I, I like to remain optimistic in this stuff, mainly because of meeting and having conversations with guys like you. Um, and people out there, uh, that's kind of what that's kind of what gives me hope in, in all this stuff is that um, despite what media says, despite what we, it looks like the majority says uh, in reality, kind of like what you, you know, what you saw in the Freedom Convoy. I think everybody kind of shares that same sentiment of people just want to be fucking Canadians. People just want to be fucking Americans, be left alone, build businesses, have families, have a life. And, uh, you know, I think that's what's more important. But when you get when you follow the money. And you, you start to realize where people got their hands in and it's all about money and control, money and control. But I, I try to remain optimistic and it's and it's because of guys like you, man. 
Oh, thanks. Sure. I, I, I appreciate the sentiment. And likewise. <coughs> but uh, yeah, so um, back to Freedom Convoy, if I may, for a moment. We've yeah, had no. this. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, this inquiry into the invocation of the Emergencies Act wrapped up. And it's it, it brought all kinds of receipts, um, whether those who are like hard in their hearts and hard in their positions will be persuaded that what the government did was wrong uh, remains to be seen. And I'm somewhat doubtful, but um, I mean, it's all on the record now that, you know, the government was trying to smear us before it even started um, multiple levels of government involved in the invocation of this act were telling Trudeau that it wasn't necessary. Um, the Trudeau government, um, the, the one last piece of evidence that would have like, you know, made it all incontrovertible as if the other mountains of evidence don't matter. But like, you know, there, there was minutes to a meeting between Trudeau and uh, his cabinet ministers on the day that, or the day before they invoked the act that are still redacted. They won't let anybody see them, which goes to show you what are they hiding? Right. So like the, 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 the downstream, um, perception of the freedom convoy if you're paying attention is that we were right trudeau government was wrong and like they really showed their hands the lengths that governments will go to and i mean this doesn't just apply to trudeau i don't think i think he's an example for the, how the rest of them think about us about the people is that you know it, 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 they'll go to any lengths to smear and uh disregard or attack anyone who dissents against them. And we're now seeing this with this Twitter files dump where um, Musk and a bunch of these journalists are exposing all the inner workings of Twitter with regards to the 2020 election and kicking Trump off and blocking the New York Post story on the Hunter Biden's laptop. And like, you know, irrespective of all of those individual issues, the whole thing just shows you that like, our elite classes, our governments, they're not here for us, right? Like if any, if there's any lesson to be taken from what's going on now, like they're, they're frauds. And if we're going to like move forward as a society and improve things, whether improve things in general or improve the lot of truck drivers, like we kind of have to organize and do stuff on our own. And again, keep talking because those guys, they're, they're frauds and we should just ignore them and move past them. Like it's beyond proven now that our governments are useless and they're in the pockets of their own interests and are going to do nothing for people. Yeah, everybody knows that, too. I mean, especially even progressives and conservatives in the U.S., they all know that these people in Congress are all working for you know that you know they're all insider trading they're all just working for maintaining control and maintaining their money and power so yeah the, the best way to I'm, I'm 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 right with you uh i'm right in step with everything you just said right there man you're you're absolutely right and we're gonna you know i hope to i hope to have you on again you know in a couple months and you know we're gonna see some progress from there i'm gonna get you in touch with that guy matt oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. tell me yeah. so tell t tell so, me and your listeners about this organization i want to hear more about them 
Yeah, because I, I was going to record an episode on Friday, but then I was like, no, I want to wait until I talk to, you know, Gord, because I wanted to get this out there, that there is this organization. And similar to how the media tried to change the narrative of, you know, the, the Freedom Convoy, they did something similar with, uh, well, they're not doing something similar. They're just trying to suppress truckers looking united, doing what we're talking about, united, uni- uniting, sending a message, solving problems. So this organization basically started on TikTok called the North American Driver Resource Association between and it started with an argument between two truckers of course and uh, <laughs> where they were, were yeah where they were actually were agreeing on everything but just uh, disagreed on the avenues to get there to solve these problems this guy Charles Cleburne who has a radio show on TNC radio i think you can go find it on tnclive.com and then this guy Matt Kilmer who's uh who's he's just a Missouri guy who loves trucking I spent two hours with this guy on the phone and their first organized step so they have a website and stuff and they they've registered as a nonprofit. but their first thing was they they pumped it into the TikTok algorithm to get 10,000 toy trucks sent to the Department of Transportation office in DC and they were supposed to be donations to toys for tots and they wrote on them you know notes about how to fix the industry hey support this bill hey we need to fix this hey we need to fix that Media hasn't covered it, um, but this is the first organization out there, really, outside of the ATA, which is owned by mega carriers, and um, the OIDA, which is kind of just OIDA has basically just become a. They they really only care about their revenue. They help you get your authority. They'll take your money. They'll, they'll help you, you know, in a trucking company, but they're not doing anything for drivers. The ATA has been around for 90 years. You know, truck parking. We should have known that this was going to be an issue back at the, you know, when we built, when we were building interstates and we were nationalizing our supply chain. They're not doing anything. OIDA is not doing anything. So these guys came together, their organization, and I think you're going to be one of a huge integral part because they're going to, they need a guy like you. You do what you're doing on Substack and the messages you you got is really going to add to what they're doing because they're they are going to be the next organization that I think to rise to um, hopefully solve exactly what we were talking about throughout yeah, this entire episode. Yeah, so I, I want to talk to those guys. I want to hear your interview with them. I want to, so there was another, there, there, there's this uh, couple on Twitter, uh, uh, Trucking Across America with the Schmitz. Uh, yeah, T-A-A-W-S. Um, they're, they're out there on Trucking Twitter. They put me in contact with this other outfit called CDL Drivers Unlimited who are run by a fella named Jim Heffernan down in Florida. And I'm, I had a phone conversation with Mr. Heffernan and I got to call him again. Um, the, what they're trying to do is I think somewhat similar to what um, these other guys you're talking about are doing, but they're one of their big pushes is to get people again, to talk amongst themselves and distribute information regarding legislation. And also I think they want to do something with like the department of labor to get because uh, the department of labor won't consider anything a skilled trade without a minimum amount of training requirement. And I think it's two years of either school or on the job training that's like registered and has a paper trail. And I think what they want to do is they want to take trucking and get it turned into a trade. So he's to trying to do the same thing. The same thing. He was. We were talking about that on the phone. He's trying to do that exact same thing. Yeah. So I want to. I want to talk to Jim again. I want to talk to these people, and then I'm, I think I'm going to do a. I know it's going to be one of my next Substack articles is to like highlight these smaller organizations that are trying to do stuff and get them some exposure, 
and and you know get their ideas out too right like i because you know it's hard there's so much noise out there and there's just like so many distractions so many different things and you know no offense to guys like oida or landline magazine or any of these other people like those guys are doing good work as well but like to highlight the smaller guys that are also trying to improve things help them get their messaging out discuss these ideas so yeah i can't wait to hear it no it's, it's going to be good and when it comes to that skilled labor thing people like to refer to trucking as un, unskilled i know steve vichelli even says it in that lex freeman podcast he, he had mentions it but if it was and i've heard this argument once before and i've said it it's just if it was so unskilled why is it taking billions and dollars in investment and in technology and these cameras to do what a human can do if, if it's, it's so unskilled, you know, is, you know, because being an accountant is considered a, a skilled job. Like you need to, you need to have a degree, you need to have experience, you know, uh, you need to have all this, you need to be able to be a master at Excel. Well, Excel is technology. And it's just, if Excel is technology, you know, you're not going to accounting firms don't have 90% turnover rates. You know, they have professionals working there. So it's just, if trucking is such an unskilled profession, why is it taking billions of dollars of investment to create a computer to do what we could just train people to do? That's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. You know, that, that, and that's bang on, dude. That's excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, my wife should probably be getting out of bed here soon. It's nine 30. Holy cow. We, we, <laughs> we almost did two hours. Yeah, we almost cracked two hours. I thought the two-hour limit. No, I'm I'm glad we had this conversation, man. There's a there's a lot of stuff on there. I like I said, I don't let people hold back. I don't hold back in my opinions. I'm glad uh, glad you were open and honest about everything. Uh, with that, you know, I have I have some friends who are on the progressive side of things who I hope still appre- you know can appreciate your opinion because you know like you, I don't come from a right or left. You know, I kind of. But I'm just, you know, I'm a fucking American and I'm, you know, for what's best for the American people. And like, we need both sides of things. We need progressive ideas. We need conservative. We need some libertarian ones. And it's just, we just need to figure out how to get there. So, yeah, man, I want to thank you for coming on. I'm going to, uh, we'll be, we'll be in touch. I'll get you in touch with Matt and uh, yeah, good luck out there, man. Stay safe. Yeah. Yeah. No sweat. And uh, if anyone where, wants where, to. Yeah. I was going to say, before we let you go, where can people find you? If anyone wants to come find me, I'm on Twitter at driver autonomy. Um, and then there's my Substack, which uh, it's called <clears throat> AutonomousTruckers.Substack.com. I've not been putting out a whole lot the last couple of weeks. I do get paid to write for certain publications. Um, I was asked to contribute a chapter to a book. So that took a lot of my time and that's in the editing process now. I'm also working on a book review for this uh, lady, um, Karen Levy's book, uh, uh, Data Driven truckers technology and the new workplace surveillance so i've got all these little writing projects um i've written a bunch of articles for newsweek on the freedom convoy um i've wrote some stuff for the american conservative um a website in the uk called unheard i've done a couple pieces for this little dissident uh website called i am 1776 uh, you can just type my name in uh, gord mcgill m-a-g-i-l-l into your nearest search tool and you can find me that way and um yeah man no thank you so much yeah no thank you man and uh we'll be in touch have a good one man stay safe out there all right yeah man happy trails yes sir we'll talk to you